Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with a very special guest who actually inspired our podcast, Dr. Rebecca Decker of Evidence-Based Birth. Dr. Decker is also a nurse scientist who saw a need to bring scientific evidence into the hands of practitioners and patients. She started an incredible website, evidencebasedbirth.com, which provides palatable literature reviews on pregnancy and birth-related topics like positions during labor, diagnosing gestational diabetes, water immersion during labor, and a whole lot more. She also has an evidence-based birth instructor program for childbirth educators, doulas, nurses, midwives, and physicians, and her own podcast as well. And just to add to everything else she's doing, she also recently published a book titled Babies Are Not Pizza, They're Born, Not Delivered. When Stephanie and I were in our PhD program in Pregnant, we actually happened across her website and loved that Dr. Decker was making evidence available to everyone, not just other researchers. So we also share that passion. So we're excited to speak with her today. And Steph and I were also recently on the Evidence-Based Birth podcast talking about the importance of quote-unquote good reproductive health communication between patients and providers and within families. So also be sure to check out episode 96 of the Evidence-Based Birth podcast and also feel free to check out all of her other great podcasts and blog posts where she talks about the evidence and the guidelines that she's creating. But before we also get into the interview, we want to make our monthly pitch to become a patron of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com WCH where you can get our lovely show notes and you can also find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. And if you like this podcast, please tell your colleagues and give us a five-star review on iTunes. So hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. This has been an episode we wanted to record since we started recording our podcast over two years ago. So we always like to ask our guests if you could provide a little bit of details about your background, your clinical experience, educational background, etc. Sure. Thank you, Nicole and Stephanie, for having me. So I have been a nurse since 2002. And I started off my nursing career, I decided to just get a little bit of clinical experience before I went back to graduate school, because I always knew I wanted to go to graduate school and get my PhD in nursing and become a professor. So I got the requisite clinical experience first. And then I headed to grad school at a pretty young age. I think it was only like 24 years old when I started grad school. And back then, Uh, That was pretty unusual because most nurses wait until their children are grown if they have children to go to grad school. So I was the youngest one in my cohort, and I went through a master's program, became a clinical nurse specialist, and then went straight into a PhD program where I specialized in research. And initially, my research area of interest was mental health and the link between mental health and cardiovascular disease and survival. So I was really interested in why people with depression and anxiety 
were more likely to die or be rehospitalized when they had a heart condition and how could we help those people? So that's what I started my research in. And I was in the middle of doing my dissertation study on that topic when I had my first baby and was really just totally taken aback by the care that I received in the hospital. So I was required to give birth at the same academic medical center where I was getting my PhD. And I remember thinking, well, I really want the nurses to like me. I want the doctors to like me because I work here, right? Like I'm getting my PhD here and I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. So I had this mindset that I would just go in and do as I was told. And when I got there, I guess I just didn't account for the fact that they would be telling me to do things that were extremely outdated and not evidence-based and potentially even harmful to me and my baby. So like that hadn't even crossed my mind. And I just wanted to be a compliant patient. But then all of a sudden, I kind of was realized like they're telling me I have to fast. So I wasn't allowed to eat or drink during labor. I wasn't allowed to get up and walk around. I wasn't even allowed to use the bathroom. They did a catheterization and on me uh, because I couldn't pee on the bedpan. So the care I received was just so kind of horrendous and outdated. And I started talking with people around community and realizing that I was not the only one and just started to look at the research and kind of was shocked by how there's a lack of evidence-based care in many facilities around childbirth. And so I started collecting information and That's how I started posting articles at evidencebasedbirth.com. And that just kind of started me on my journey of immersing myself in the research on childbirth. So I've spent the past eight or nine years, just that's like all I do in my spare time is read the research on childbirth. And after I got my PhD, I continued being a faculty and was an assistant professor. And I eventually left my job three years ago to do evidence-based birth full-time. That is awesome. So we will ask you more questions about evidence-based birth. But before that, we also like to ask our guests a question about what informs your perspective. So you talked about that a little bit in your story, but why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? I think uh, one of the things that I really got out of both my undergraduate and my doctoral nursing programs is patient-centered care. And that includes putting the client or the patient at the center, um, having them kind of be the leader of their own team if, you know, if, if they're wanting to do that and centering everything around the family. And that's kind of where, you know, my beliefs are and my heart is with that family going through that childbirth journey. And so often I feel that's what's been left behind in our healthcare system. Instead, we're focused on policies and traditions and routine and liability and not really thinking about the person that we're caring for. I think that about sums it up and pretty much aligns perfectly with why we do woman-centered health podcast. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Totally. So that was great. Okay, perfect. So like we said, we are going to talk all things evidence-based birth. So let's jump right in. So you talked a little bit about evidence-based birth and, you know, how that kind of came to be and in starting or, you know, thinking about this evidence after your first childbirth experience. But can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what inspired maybe the business aspect or or how it kind of came to be? Yeah. So I looked into the research because of that first birth, which I consider to be traumatic and how it was treated. And I made a bunch of different decisions based on the evidence for my second birth. Uh, For one thing, I found a midwife. I chose to avoid the local hospitals and instead gave birth at home because I didn't feel I could get... 
like the things I wanted weren't routinely offered in the hospital, in my community. And the care I received from my midwife was so different than what I had gotten in the kind of traditional delivery setting with my midwife. Like I felt supported and respected and safe and I had privacy and there were just, the the care was so wonderfully centered around me and my family and my healthcare needs that after my baby was born, I just felt so empowered and so excited because it was such a stark contrast to what I'd had the first time around. And so I was really excited to spread the word. So that's when I told my husband, I think I'm starting a blog and I looked for domain names and I found evidencebasedbirth.com was available and nobody was had a website kind of like what I was envisioning because I had this kind of vision in my mind of how I could get the evidence out there. And I just started posting the evidence, hoping that maybe like 10 or 12 people would ever find it. So that's how it started. So can you kind of tell us then how has it evolved since, you know, just getting the domain and posting it and hoping for 12 people to read it? Well, it kind of took on a life of its own. Like it was a little scary, actually, how quickly people found it and got excited about it. And there was all this momentum and every month, like the traffic to the website would double. And then the next month it would double again and double again. And there was this like doubling effect. As people found out about it, it just seemed like I'd really, I felt like I was like riding the crest of a wave, like almost like surfing, even though I've <laughs> never been surfing, but it just felt like there was all this momentum of people all around the world who were really passionate about changing maternity care, about getting evidence-based care, but really felt stuck. And I, they, what they told me is they felt like I was giving them this information that had been locked up in medical journals and they felt so empowered because now they had access to all this information that they could use. And a lot of the people who were really ex- most excited about my website, um, in addition to a lot of first-time parents who started following the blog, but there were a lot of doulas who we're like, wow, now I have somewhere I can send my clients like that I can trust. And so it just kept growing and growing. And the whole time I was doing this, like every weekend, every evening, I would stay up, you know, working on this, on different articles for the website. And then during the daytime, I had to turn that part of my brain off and focus on being a nursing professor and teaching pathophysiology and pharmacology and um, working with my research interns and on my randomized trials. And then I would come home at night and turn on my birth brain again Mm -hmm. and work on the birth research. And that went on for about three or four years. Now, I can't remember exactly. (laughs) I think it was maybe four years. And eventually, I got to the point And I talk about this more in my book where I realized I had to make a decision. If I did both, I knew I was going to burn out. And so, and I often felt like my brain was just being pulled in two different directions. Plus, you also have to remember that I was still working for that same academic medical center where I'd had that first traumatic birth. And sadly, most things hadn't changed. In general, they were still treating birthing women the same exact way I had been treated years and years earlier. And ethically, I had to decide if I wanted to keep working for them or not. Mm-hmm. So I talk more about that dilemma in my book. I just want to clarify too for our listeners. I mean, these are things that Stephanie and I know because we have thoroughly checked out your website. But you had mentioned how you have information for uh, doulas were finding you or professionals were finding you and then also that expectant parents were finding you. So can you talk a little bit about how you structure your website so that you talk to both of those populations? Yeah. So it's kind of a unique idea. 
Most of the time, researchers, like you mentioned in the intro, only talk to other researchers. Clinicians talk to other clinicians. But what I really wanted to create was a website that kind of democratized the research to make it accessible to anyone. So how we have it set up is we have, gosh, I think close to 20 articles that we call our signature articles that are peer-reviewed reviews of the literature on a specific topic related to childbirth. But they're written in a language that anyone could understand. They're typically written at like college level and above. and But they are written for lay people and clinicians. So parents and providers and doulas and other health workers can all access information. It's all free. And it's hopefully written in a way that they can actually understand the research and the limitations of the research. Because as you know, just because something's published in a medical journal doesn't make it a quality study. So we also talk about the limitations of the research that, that's available. And That's kind of how we structure. That's the main, like the heart of what we do at Evidence-Based Birth is writing those articles and then maintaining them. So the reason we only have about 20 of them is because it takes a ton of work to keep them updated. So every couple of years, we have to go do a completely refresh of our literature review and make sure we have all of the latest research included in that article. And then we also do other smaller things like our podcast and our YouTube channel and our Instagram page. So we're sharing the evidence, but the heart of what we do is in those signature articles. And don't you have it so your website is set up so you can almost enter it as a professional or as an expectant parent? Yeah. So when you go to the main page, it says like, if you scroll down, there's like, I'm a parent or I'm a professional. And if you click on that image, it'll take you to the list of resources we offer for parents or the list of resources for professionals. It's also organized that way on the top menu. So you can click on parents and they'll drop down all the resources for parents and the same thing with um, professionals. So can you give us a rundown of these topics that you have in your signature articles? And can you also speak to how you decided to pick those topics? Sure. Let me (laughs) pull up my my own Dropbox drive where we have them all in one spot. So I can maybe I can just kind of read through the name so you can see we cover a variety of topics, mainly related to childbirth, but also some newborn procedures. We cover some pregnancy-related tests and conditions. But we have an article on advanced maternal age, big babies, birthing positions, having a version for a breech baby, skin-to-skin care after a cesarean. A new article that we recently released was about newborn circumcision. And we have articles on doulas, due dates, Um, eating and drinking, eye ointment, failure to progress, fetal monitoring, groupie strep, gestational diabetes, and the list goes on. I could read like 10 more, but that's kind of like gives you an idea of uh, we cover a variety of topics from pregnancy through the newborn period. And each one is meant to be kind of like a deep dive into the evidence on that topic. So for example, with newborn circumcision, that's our latest article. That was a really difficult article to write because it's such an incredibly controversial subject. In fact, we spent more than a year developing the article, sending it to experts and ethicists and researchers in the field. And then that article is available on the website. And then for our professional members who are belong to the website, they can have a full-length printer-friendly PDF that they can download and print off for their clients. And then for parents, we have a two-page handout that we're going to be making available shortly that is kind of like a companion to that article with just like a short 
overview of the evidence on that topic. So we try to have a one or two page handout available on each of those bigger topics so that if you don't have time to read 30 or 40 pages, you can at least read the one or two page handout. Do you want to share with our listeners, I don't know if you had mentioned memberships or how you had worded it, but can you talk about maybe some of the services you offer within your website as well? So how can they get access to the full feature? What what do they need to do to get that access? Yeah. And so we do try to keep all of the research publicly available. So those articles are all available online. But if you um, want to take your learning to the next level as a professional, we have the evidence-based birth professional membership where there's continuing education courses you can take on many of these topics. And there's a library full of printer-friendly PDFs that you can print off for your clients and a community where we can support you. And we do monthly training. So we kind of offer all those resources for professionals in the field. For parents, our main thing with our parents is serving them through our evidence-based birth instructor program. So we have more than 200 instructors around the world. And if you hire one of those instructors to be your midwife or your doula or your childbirth educator, then they can teach you different childbirth classes. They can provide you with a login to our parent site where you can download, um, go through our PDF library. We also have a video library. So that's typically what I encourage parents to do if they want to take their learning to the next level is to look on our directory and see if, if there's an instructor near them. But if not, there is plenty of material on the website itself that's publicly available that you could use to educate yourself. And Rebecca, so you talked about a lot of the topics that you cover in your signature articles. Could you talk a little bit about what the reception of these articles are from providers or health workers? Oh my gosh, it's amazing. <laughs> like they, the, the providers, healthcare providers love our articles. I hear this probably at least once a day from a clinician saying like, I am so busy. There's no way I can stay on top of the research. Thank you so much for synthesizing the research and keeping it updated for me. So it's always at my fingertips and I can just print this off or tell my patient to go to this link and all the information's right there. So it's been from day one, it's just made their jobs so much easier that they love it. (laughs) So, I mean, every once in a while, I can probably count on one hand the number of angry clinicians. And it's usually someone who I think doesn't quite understand what we're saying or doing or didn't read the article correctly. Uh, We did get some pushback from some more naturally minded practitioners when we came out with like the vitamin K article explaining why vitamin K is so beneficial for newborns. I remember, and I talk about this in my book one time, a midwife, I think from Israel, actually found the number of the university where I worked and called my department and like yelled at the administrative assistant over the phone because she was so angry that I had said that vitamin K was (laughs) evidence-based. So um, yeah, so a little bit of hate mail, um, but for the most part, just a lot, a lot of people who are really grateful that something like this exists that makes their life so much easier and makes it easier for them to communicate with their patients. So then how do you use the podcast? So the podcast is a mixture of occasionally we do series where we'll talk about the evidence on different topics. But for the most part, I've been 
focusing on interviewing people in the field, both parents and professionals. So once a month, we try to feature a parent and their birth story. And typically, I interview people who took our evidence-based birth childbirth class and, and find out how their birth went. And it's always really exciting to listen to those stories. And then with professionals, we interview them about different aspects of the birth field. And it's really interesting to hear from people, a variety of people, um, mostly across the United States, but some in Canada about different topics that they're passionate about. And so they can kind of do a little education. And then they often get a chance to ask me a question about the research at the end. So the podcast is kind of a more informal way that we get the research out there. So I don't even remember how I came across your website initially, but it was definitely a goldmine to me personally. And then I've shared it with, I don't even know how many people. <laughs> and so I remember one, so I had a fairly, you know, I don't wouldn't say traumatic birth experience with my first, but definitely did not go the way that I thought it would. And I think one of the biggest issues what I, I had premature rupture of membranes and I too was getting care at a large academic medical center, but I did have a midwife. But, you know, I think policies and procedures are always going to be the the top priority. And that's what you have to work under. Um, and I think just maybe like several months after I, I gave birth, you had a topic about premature rupture of membranes. And basically, I was told that I needed to induce within 24, or I needed to give birth within 24 hours. So I had to be induced. And then I remember reading your article that there's actually not a lot of evidence for that. So just a little personal story about how I think that article could have been so wonderful had I had it at the time. But in the same light, I think whenever we sort of challenge clinicians, you know, as patients, we challenge clinicians. And I, all of us are patients, and even if we are clinicians. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about for women who have this evidence from your website, um, women or parents, if they have this evidence from your website, what's a good way they can advocate for themselves in taking that evidence to their clinician who might be doing something that's different? Well, first of all, I try to encourage people, especially if they're early in pregnancy or they're not pregnant yet, to try and find a healthcare professional who is already practicing in line with what you want or switch to someone like that, if at all possible. Because it's very, very difficult to get the kind of care you want if your provider is not comfortable with providing that kind of care. So example for you with premature rupture of membranes at term, evidence really shows that there's benefits and risks both to waiting for labor to start on its own and for inducing labor right away. So there's really no one right decision for everyone. However, some clinicians are very set on only doing things one way. So even if you'd known that research showed it was appropriate in your unique situation to wait for labor to start on its own. And even if you preferred that, and even if you took the evidence to your doctor or care provider, they could still put really high pressure tactics on you. And I see this all the time. So that eventually the pressure would get to you and you would start doubting yourself and questioning yourself and you would go along with what they wanted. So the best way to avoid that kind of scenario is to not be in that kind of practice to begin with. And instead, 
B, getting healthcare from clinicians who are already supportive of the kind of care you want. Unfortunately, many parents don't figure that out until they're in a situation like you are. It's typically at the end of pregnancy. You're realizing all of a sudden that your care provider does not want to give you options, that they're set on doing things a certain way, and you're not quite sure how to speak up for yourself. And at that point, it can be very difficult to get the kind of care you want because you're asking for an exception to the routine. And human beings don't like to make exceptions for people. (laughs) We like patterns. We like to do things the same way we've always done them. So there are options for advocating for yourself, but my first choice is to not have to put yourself in that situation to begin with. Does that make sense? Totally. It totally makes sense. And I'm going to maybe try and flip the script and maybe this is maybe a little bit beyond this conversation, but I'm just curious. Say I'm a provider. I'm reading one of these and I'm like, you know, like there's evidence, but you know, it's really challenging. And so I'm just curious, how can you as a provider maybe work through this or look at this and try and be open to this evidence? Oh, that that's a hard one because openness is actually a personality trait. So when I was writing my book, Babies Are Not Pizzas, I was like, I was curious about this. I was like, why is it that some people are so resistant to change? Mm-hmm. Then other people, like I have a sister who's a doctor and she's incredibly open and curious and she's always looking for the latest research that comes out and she's willing to admit that she's been doing something wrong and you know, willing to change when there's enough evidence to suggest she should change her practice. Whereas other people are like, you know, you better believe they're never going to change. You know, I'll never believe that evidence, they'll say. So it's hard because, um, so I found that their openness is considered one of the major personality traits. You can either be low in openness or high in openness, or you can be somewhere in between. And that can sometimes determine how willing you are to look at the evidence and make shifts in your practice. However, openness can be changed. So over time, you can become more open or less open. And I think we can all probably think of someone in our life who has gone from being really close-minded and stubborn to being a little bit more open-minded about things. Mm -hmm. And I think often that happens through exposure to different people and different behaviors and practices. So I think one reason I see a lot of clinicians being really closed-minded is because they've kind of been educated in one place, did their residency or, you know, internship in one place, and then they got a job in that place. So they've never like seen anything different. Mm -hmm. In terms of physicians, often I see a lot of closed-mindedness when they didn't train with midwives as residents or as medical students. So They did a medical school. They never saw a nurse midwife. They did residency. They never worked with a nurse midwife. And they become an obstetrician and there's no nurse midwives in their practice. How open do you think they're going to be to the midwifery model of care? True. Not very, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Probably not. Yeah. So I think it's as a clinician, I think it's important to stretch yourself by getting outside your bubble a little bit and doing some interprofessional education like kind of continuing education opportunities with other people who are not in your bubble. Well, and I think what's great about what you're offering with an evidence-based birth is that, I mean, you're talking about big topics that affect birth. I mean, for example, not eating while you're giving birth. I, both of my kids have not been allowed to eat, you know, so that's (laughs) really, no, I wasn't. And so, I mean, that's a really common experience still. Right. And so I think what's great is that you 
offer a very, and you had talked about this, and if there's more you'd want to add, you can, about, you know, the peer review and how you sent the article about circumcision to ethicists. And you really extend yourself and look into the field and say, hey, can you look at this? Like you're, I mean, and you're also doing this with methodological rigor, which I think as nerds and researchers can all appreciate. And then you're doing a systematic review, like you're not cherry picking articles. You're doing this very comprehensively. So if ever, you know, wherever you fall within the spectrum of open to closed mindedness, you have what I would consider very a very solid presentation of the information that's out there right now. And then I also think it's great that you you offer the CEs and the mentorship and the classes so that people can continue to grow professionally. Yeah, I think it's interesting, though, that even though the evidence might be really well presented and really well done, unfortunately, statistics and evidence doesn't necessarily drive behavior change. Mm-hmm. Behavior change from a clinician often happens when we share stories or when they have a personal experience. So personally shadowing a midwife or visiting a birth center and talking with the staff there, that's going to be like a hundred times more powerful than reading a couple of articles about the evidence. It's just how our brains are wired is to make changes based on our personal experiences and the stories we hear. So I think there's kind of there's definitely a place for both. Like I mm-hmm. want to provide the evidence so it's available, but it also takes interpersonal like interactions in order to see change. But I did want to go back to the advocacy question because I felt like I I didn't answer it totally. I did say, you know, obviously it's better if you find the right match yeah. or fit yeah. first. But what if you find yourself in a situation, like I think, Nicole, you said, where you were not allowed to eat during labor? Mm-hmm. Or if you are at the end of pregnancy and there's a disagreement with your provider about something you do or don't want, I think that it's very, it's critical that birthing parents are educated in in self-advocacy techniques, which is not something that's taught in most childbirth classes. It's not typically taught in high school or college. We talk about consent culture with sex but we don't often talk about it in terms of consent in the medical setting. And so uh, one of the things that I do in our childbirth classes that we teach at evidence-based birth are we really focus on mostly teaching your partner or your support person how to speak up for you. Because if you're the person giving birth, it can be very hard to vocalize like, because you have to get yourself out of labor land and try and talk in this rational, like, well, let me explain the evidence to you. Like (laughs) no such thing. (laughs) Yeah, Someone in labor shouldn't have, you shouldn't have to do that. No. So you need to have a partner or an advocate, somebody there with you who knows exactly what your wishes are in the event of every kind of scenario and is willing and able to speak up respectfully and communicate in a nonviolent, very respectful manner. And so we actually practice those skills in our class. So Nicole, if I was your partner and the nurses were like, sorry, honey, you're not allowed to eat. You know, you can't have any snacks out. Um, You need to get rid of that food. I was your partner. I'd be like, oh, you know, nurse so-and-so, thank you so much for sharing that information with us. And Nicole's going to continue eating when she feels the urge because that's her right. And she's made that decision. Wow. And, you know, like, 
Number three, I'm, Nicole. Yeah, now I just I'm gonna. Ha- I'm now just gonna have a third kid just to like test all this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, so and and with eating and drinking in particular, there's a couple different ways you can approach that, and that's why I love working with parents in a in a smaller intimate setting in a childbirth class because we can be like, all right, so this is what you want. Your hospital does it this way. Here's how. Here's some different ways you could approach it. You could bring your own food and just eat when the nurses aren't in the room. <laughs> That's your human right. Uh, it is your human and legal right to nourish yourself. There's no evidence showing that you should fast during labor. It's their policy. It's not a requirement on you. It may be a requirement on, on them, but they can't force you to adhere to their policy. So... I would kind of, so first of all, knowing that you have the right to eat and that it's a human right and like a legal right, then kind of figuring out your strategy. Okay, are you going to do it that way? Or maybe are you going to like talk about it with your provider ahead of time and get a special note written on your, you know, admission paperwork that you plan on providing your own food and drink? Or you could just openly defy the policy and eat and just be like, oh, yeah. And your partner could say, you know, she's going to eat. That's okay. Made this decision. So, you know, of course, depending on where you give birth, that's why I love having an evidence-based birth instructor who you can bounce these ideas off of if you're a parent because they probably have inside knowledge about how that staff will react. Like, will the staff kind of just like roll their eyes and be like, okay, whatever? Or will they get really huffy and try and take it out on you in some way because they're irritated at you? And that might inform what method you choose. So if they're likely to get huffy and irritated and perhaps even retaliate against you because they're mad at you for disobeying the policy, as they call it, um, then you might be more inclined to just eat when you're in the bathroom or when the nurse isn't in the room. So that's kind of an example of like the kinds of things we go over in our classes. And I love that. And then I can also at the same time imagine that there's probably some of our listeners who are like, Oh, what? You know, what about anesthesia? What if they have an emergency C-section? You know, I can I can anticipate there's probably some listeners being like, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> well, so that's where, so yeah, we're talking about the advocacy without going over the evidence. Yeah. So um, before we even talk about this, their wishes and everything, the parents in my class are required to read the evidence on eating and drinking during labor. So they're coming to this conversation and 100% of the time they tell me that that's what they wish after they read the evidence. Mm-hmm. And they realize that, oh, oh, that was from the 1940s when they actually didn't intubate women during general anesthesia. <laughs> or that, you know, like, so <laughs> they, when they, when they find out the history of why that's done and how it's just completely ridiculous to require that today, 100% of parents who read that paper, the evidence on eating and drinking are like, I'm going to eat and drink if I feel like it. And nobody's going to tell me not to. So that's just an example of how evidence can be really empowering and give you options that you didn't know you had because you're just kind of going along with the status quo, what everybody says, what our culture says is right. But if you actually look at the history and the research and then all of a sudden all these like light bulbs go off and they're like, wow, I had no idea that the research shows this is safe and that this was an ancient protocol put in place from the 1940s back when they did general anesthesia on almost everyone and never intubated anyone. So that's kind of an example of how evidence can be really empowering. But it's not just knowing the evidence, it's also knowing how you're going to enact the evidence. So I think that eating during delivery is definitely a big topic. And I'm just curious, you know, I know you said you had 20. Are there a few like top five or top three that get the most traffic or the most popular ones that get brought up? 
Yeah. I always have to look at the stats because I can never remember. In terms of our signature articles, our most popular article is probably the evidence on inducing labor for going past your due date. And you can find that at evidencebasedbirth.com slash due dates. And then the second most popular signature article is the one on vitamin, the vitamin K shot for newborns. That's evidencebasedbirth.com slash vitamin K. And then the third most popular one is about induction or cesarean for big baby. And you can find that at evidencebasedbirth.com slash big baby. But we also have this natural induction series that's like really popular. So a lot of people find our website when they're trying to naturally induce labor and they're like Googling like what's the evidence on eating dates or using castor oil or having sex to start labor and they'll find our articles. So some of our more popular articles are on those topics as well. I did personally use the one on not inducing me because I did go over and when they had the conversation, they're like, okay, and when you're at 41 weeks and we'll talk about induction, I'm like, no, you won't. We'll cross that bridge, (laughs) but you're not going to induce me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a popular one. And we also, there's a big study that came out called the ARRIVE study that's focused on Mm -hmm. um, inducing everyone at 39 weeks. And so I have an article about that, evidencebasebirth.com slash ARRIVE. And that one is uh, popular as well. It's actually one of our most popular podcast episodes Mm. is our podcast about the ARRIVE study. Yeah, that was a big study. Our, Our top most popular podcast is the one about the evidence on using something called sterile water injections for pain relief during labor. That's kind of where they give you these tiny little injections using just sterile water in your back for back labor. And I don't know why, but it has like four times more listens than any other podcast episode. Interesting. So if we can go off of our questions a little bit, and maybe this is not something that you're ready to talk about. But I feel like there's this underlying context to all of this conversation and, and especially in the advocacy and conversations that we've been having. But it seems like when you're talking about you're using words like the healthcare provider, the healthcare worker taking it out on women or arguing. There's like this underlying context of controlling women, especially at childbirth, which is one of the reasons Nicole and I really wanted to center our conversation on communication in reproductive health care because of this issue. So could you talk a little bit about any kind of work that you've done trying to improve that culture? Yeah. And I think you raise a good point because the, that kind of culture is it varies widely depending on where you live. So you might be listening to this podcast and just be like aghast to be like, I can't believe she's talking about how dare uh, she say that somebody might ever retaliate against a pregnant woman. Like that's just ridiculous. But you have to understand that I work with parents and professionals from around the world in every corner of the globe and in every corner of the United States. And there's definitely a theme of um, sexism against uh, women in particular, but also, you know, LGBTQ people in terms of um, they're just not seen as competent or reliable or responsible enough to make decisions about their body and their baby. And I think it's a, I think it's subconscious. I don't think it's like that healthcare workers consciously are like, well, I'm not going to respect this person. And I don't, and obviously it's not every provider, it's not every nurse, but it's common enough that I hear about it every day. So there's definitely a lack of respect towards treating the birthing person as the leader of their healthcare team. In fact, they're usually at the bottom of the power hierarchy and have the least power of anyone in the room. 
So I can't remember what your question was, but I just want to say yes, it is a problem. Yeah, that's definitely getting at my at, at my question. And think of the story of Serena Williams, who is famous and an athlete. And then being a woman of color, I think that doubles the injustice. But that story about how when she gave birth and afterwards, she was trying to tell the healthcare providers that she was having a PE and nobody really listening to her, treating her like she doesn't know her own body or that they're the experts. So I definitely just wanted to touch on that and get your perspective on that cultural issue, especially because I think it probably varies widely in the U.S. Well, there was a big study um, that just came out recently by Vitam et al. called Giving Voice to Mothers. It's a large survey of the U.S. on mistreatment during birth. And they actually found that, not surprising to me, it is fairly common to experience mistreatment during birth. That includes being dismissed or not having your request responded to at all or in a reasonable amount of time. And as we've seen in a lot of uh, stories of maternal death, which, you know, deaths can happen during pregnancy, during birth, and in the first year postpartum, that a common theme in a lot of these deaths is that women were not listened to, their symptoms were not respected. And so there is this common theme that uh, of healthcare workers dismissing pregnant women's concerns, just kind of brushing them off as, oh, that's just pregnancy or that's just postpartum instead of taking it seriously. And then there's also obviously a racist aspect to that as well, because this research found that women of color are two to three times more likely to experience mistreatment during childbirth. And that's why I personally see a lot more women of color are choosing home birth, they're choosing midwives, and they're choosing to have doulas because I think of that problem with the healthcare system. So you can actually see trends going up with women of color more likely to hire a doula. Their rates of home birth are going up. Their rates of choosing midwives are going up. And I think it's because they're actively trying to avoid that dominant culture uh, that doesn't listen to women. That's interesting. Yeah, but I do. And I go into more detail about maternal mortality and mistreatment and childbirth in, in my book, Babies Are Not Pizzas. Why don't we talk a little bit more about that? So you had yeah. mentioned a few times about the book. Can you tell us tell us more about it? Yeah, so I taught a college class both while I was still full-time professor and adjunct for a couple of years after I left my professor position. But the college class was called Babies Are Not Pizzas, The Science of How They're Born, Not Delivered. And it was an honors seminar class, and it was so much fun to teach. And every semester, the class would fill up like within – minutes of registration opening because people were like waiting to register for that class. And it was so much fun to teach. And at the, I knew I needed to write a book and I knew I was going to call it Babies Are Not Pizzas. And the book ended up being a little bit different than what I anticipated. It's actually a memoir of about a 10-year period of my life where I was in the midst of giving birth myself and trying to create change and kept running up against barriers and how difficult it was to create change in the maternal health system. And so it's really a story. It takes place over 10 years and, and it weaves the evidence through my story. So people tell me it's like a page turner because they keep reading because they want to know what happens next in the story. But while they're reading kind of a fascinating story, they're also getting educated because I bring in all the history and all the research and a lot of psychology and anthropology. So it's kind of a unique book in that it's both kind of like a nonfiction, but also a story. Ooh, we might have to check that out, Stephanie. Definitely. 
So going back to, or, you know, kind of summing up some of this conversation on giving women a voice or not disrespecting them or being discouraging. Can you give our listeners who are generally providers some tips about how they can improve their communication with patients, especially in the when they're in labor or prenatally? I think it really goes back to prenatally because, you know, obviously we may have some providers who are laborists and work shifts and they're meeting someone for the first time in labor, but that's, that can be really hard to establish that connection and rapport. And you can't really, it's really hard to educate someone when they're in labor. You know, you might explain things, but they're not getting an education, (laughs) right? And Often, I think in labor, you're explaining things in a way to just like get them to to agree to what you want them to do. Whereas if you start in pregnancy, I, I think there's just a lack of emphasis on education in general during prenatal visits. It's actually quite stunning to me how little education providers do with their patients prenatally. I don't know if they just expect them to go take a childbirth class or educate themselves by Googling things. But for example, I teach at a high school for pregnant teenagers. A friend and I, um, we help lead a class called Pregnant Parenting for Teens. And every single week, whenever we bring something up, I'm always shocked how none of them have had, none of them, their providers have spoken with them about any of this stuff. Like none of it. Like their providers don't explain flu shots to them. They don't explain breastfeeding you know, why they should breastfeed. They they don't explain what labor looks like when it's, how do you know you're in labor? I mean, they literally don't give them any information at all. What? And I don't know if it's because they're <laughs> teens um, wow. and they're prejudiced against them or if that's just like the mm. general community, like culture of mm. how you take care of pregnant women during prenatal visits. Check their blood pressure. You, you maybe check their urine or their weight. But educating them, like it's something that they don't even like, they're not even doing. (laughs) So how can you expect someone to be in labor and then try to educate them for the first time? It should be an ongoing conversation throughout pregnancy. And unfortunately, it's not. That hurts my head. (laughs) Yeah, it hurts my head. But then also, again, playing devil's advocate, you know, what if our providers were listening are like, yeah, but those checkups are only 15 minutes long. How, How can I do all of those things? I don't know. You know, I feel like that's a cop-out a little bit of a ways. Like, I don't want to, like, put the blame on them for a bad system. But I know providers who they're only given 15 minutes, but they tell their schedulers, I need 30 minutes with this client every time, even though they're not going to get paid extra for it or whatever. And maybe that's not an option. But if you're you're in a place where they're only giving you 15 minutes with a 15-year-old who's pregnant, like that's just that's just wrong. It's unethical. And if you don't even have time to explain to them why it's important that they get a flu shot or they um, get tested for gestational diabetes, then that's not healthcare. That's just like a factory. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, obviously I feel bad for people who feel stuck in that kind of time crunch, but I feel like it's also kind of a cop out and it's a sign of oppression to be like, what was me? I can't do anything about this. Then mm-hmm. find a way to educate your clients. Bring in childbirth educators to talk to your clients. Do group prenatal visits. Group prenatal visits have been shown by research to be incredibly effective. And you can include a childbirth educator in, in those group prenatal visits. There's lots of ways that it can be done 
I don't think we should just throw up our hands and say, well, we give up. We know we only get 15 minutes. There's other ways you can educate people. Love that. Those are some creative solutions. I actually have never heard of the group prenatal visits. Centering. Yeah. So centering is the trademarked Mm -hmm. name and there's a a copyrighted curriculum, but other people, you know, you can do group prenatal visits without using the trademarked method. But yeah, there's, there's lots of innovative ways. If you just put your brains together with other people, if it's a priority, it'll get done. I think the problem is because it's not typically paid for or covered, it's not a priority, but it makes your job so much easier during labor. If you have an informed, empowered client, Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to just like make your time worlds easier. So I think in the long run, it pays off, especially if you consider the fact that this person isn't a client just for the birth. But if they have a good experience with you, they'll come back to you. They'll refer other people to you. And so if you create this really safe, supportive environment where your clients are getting excellent clinical care and they're, you're also doing a little bit of education or find or, or if you can't educate themselves, then you should be telling them where to get educated. So none of this zero education. And I, and I, like I said, I don't know if that's my recent experience with teenagers. Is it just be, are they discriminated against because they're teens? So everybody thinks, well, I don't need to explain anything to them. But to me, it's kind of the opposite because I'm like, I feel like a pregnant parent, especially one who's pregnant for the first time, especially if they're a disadvantaged population, such as a teenager, like they should be given extra time extra attention, extra care and compassion. And instead I'm finding that it's the opposite, which kind of discourages me. Yeah. And I don't know if this ever exists, but I'm just curious. So I'm going to ask anyways, do you ever have providers who say, Hey, tried following your evidence, but my patients are resistant to it. Oh yeah. I hear that all the time as well. It's a two way street, right? You can have providers that are open or not open, and you can have clients who are open or not open to the evidence. And I think that's just because we're dealing with human beings. One book that really helped me figure all this out as I was writing Babies Are Not Pizzas, I was trying to figure all this like human psychology stuff out. I actually found this book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Have either of you read that? Mm -mm. It's It's just really fascinating because it just explains basically like why human beings are the way we are why we act the way we do, how culture is created, what causes us to interpret some information differently than others. And it's just a fascinating book about the history of human beings. And it just made me realize that, oh, like, well, human beings aren't always rational creatures. Like, we don't always just make decisions based on the evidence. We often make decisions based on other things as well, including culture. So I I think a lot of what you're seeing is it might be the culture of that person to, well, of course I'm going to be induced at 38 or 39 weeks because that's what every, all my friends do. That's what my, and of course I'm not going to breastfeed because that's disgusting or they're making decisions necessarily not based on the research, but on their thoughts and perceptions and what other people do. So then what tips would you have for providers to communicate that evidence with their patients? Well, I think you kind of have to First of all, understand that part of evidence-based care is understanding the values, preferences, and goals of your client. So sometimes your preferences might not line up with theirs. And although they might not be the best fit for you as a practitioner, they still deserve to have kind of those preferences honored and respected and asked about. Mm -hmm. And kind of having that perception in mind or that keeping that in mind. But then also, it's also your responsibility to educate. 
and to present the information and maybe share stories if you need to, but just mostly sticking with here's here's the information. This is why this is important. And I'll give you one example. Uh, vitamin K, the, the vitamin K shot is an or, oral vitamin K is an important way of preventing a uh, rare kind of bleeding that happens in newborns called vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And some home birth midwives may get clients who are so anti-intervention. They're not necessarily about evidence-based care. They just, they're biased medically towards not having any interventions at all. That's why they picked a home birth. And so when the midwife proposes a vitamin K shot and recommends it, they may be taken aback and, you know, resistant to that. So some midwives that I know who want to encourage the shot, how they do it is they have a very lengthy informed consent process. They basically make them read. They go through, like they sit next to them and go through the evidence-based birth article on vitamin K and explain, you know, the evidence on it. And they say, if you still want to decline this, I need you to sign a waiver. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's how they they deal with it. So, yeah. So it, it depends on, you have to pick your battles though, too, you know, in terms of, you know, maybe this isn't evidence-based what this client wants, but maybe it's not harmful either. Or maybe the risk of harm is very low, in which case you just document very carefully that you educated the client and that they expressed these wishes and made this decision. I don't know if that's helpful. That's just, I yeah. think that could be a whole nother podcast on the concept of shared decision-making and educating clients. Oh, for sure. Um, but <laughs> my ideal provider is someone who provides you with the information about all the risks and benefits of all your options, not just the one that they want you to do, and then sits back and like lets you decide as the patient. So personally, that's the kind of provider... I prefer, and that's kind of like my ideal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, I had a, I worked with an OB. This was a while back ago, but also at an academic medical center. And we had a patient who was from Europe. And we, at the time, I was living in a state that didn't even have midwives, at, at least at the time they do now. So she was kind of shocked, like it was a culture shock coming here to the U.S., how we medicalize birth. And so she was coming to our practice and really did not want anything. Like she did not want gestational diabetes testing. She didn't want ultrasounds. Uh, I can't even remember all the things she didn't want. But our OB sat down with her and, you know, said, okay, oh, well, you don't want all these things. Here is the evidence on them, especially for those minimal risk things like a gestational diabetes test is fairly, you know, the test itself is minimal. And then the two of them kind of came up with like what their non-negotiables were. And it ended up being a really good decision-making process. And it was a good learning experience, I think, for the whole practice. But the the OB said, okay, you have to be typed and crossed and you have to have a saline lock when you're in labor. You don't have to have any fluids, but you have to have, you know, some sort of access. And everything was fine. So you're saying... The client did want the saline, did not want the saline lock or? No, she just kind of, she just didn't want a whole lot of different things, like a lot of this sort of standard things that we do in the U.S. But the physician said, okay, these are the two things that I, in order for me to be your OB, these are the two things that I need you to agree on. And it was the saline lock and what was the other one? Uh, I think it was type and cross. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really sad though that, you know, that OB kind of basically said, I won't be your OB. Like that's, yeah. mm -hmm. to me, that's that's a, a threat and that's totally disrespecting the evidence 
and the client's values, goals, and preferences. And so you do not have evidence-based care in that situation. No. And in birth right. centers and home births, you know, a, a saline lock is not required. It, it's only done that way because that's the culture in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can understand the lab work potentially, but the requiring someone to have a catheter in their vein throughout labor just in case something goes wrong is is one of my pet peeves. And so it is something that if the client decides they want to compromise on, then that's their choice. So a lot of times in our childbirth class, we'll have clients who are like, I really don't want the IV hooked up with fluids, but I'm okay with having the saline lock as a port in my arm because I don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers. If it makes the hospital staff feel safer and better and more comforted, then I'll let them do it. But then I have other clients who are like, no, absolutely not. I do not like needles. I know that it will be distracting and uncomfortable. And I only want an IV if there's a medical reason for one. And in that situation, um, I think it's it's totally out of line for a physician to require that. And it's it's kind of sad that that happens. But it happens a lot. That's a really common problem across the country. And so I have an article on that too. <laughs> Uh, if you Google, I think, evidence-based birth saline lock, I have an article about that topic. And I think some of it is driven by the, and I don't know if you can speak to this a little bit too, some of this stuff is driven by the hospital, not necessarily the physician. Mm-hmm. And I don't know sort of what your stance is on that, like when the hospitals make these big policies that dictate how a physician or a midwife practice? Well, the first thing I would say is I want to see that policy in writing. Okay. I highly doubt, yeah. I highly doubt there's a written policy that they have to have a saline lock in labor. That would, that would be very rare hmm. to actually see that written. It's a cultural practice. Mm-hmm. It's not a policy. But people will say it's hospital policy when there actually is no policy or they haven't ever even looked at mm-hmm. the policy. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I, but I do think you raise a good point about providers being stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so I go into that in detail in Babies Are Not Pizza. So I actually have an entire chapter where I talk about providers who are stuck, who want to support their clients' right to labor the way they want to. But, and, and for many people, where this comes down to isn't necessarily the saline lock, but it's electronic fetal monitoring. So patients mm-hmm. who do not want to ha- be attached to the monitor at all times, and instead they want something called intermittent auscultation, auscultation, which is a handheld monitoring with a handheld Doppler. And I, so I use that as an example in chapter five of my book and talk about this amazing physician who wanted to do this for their client and what happened as a result. And it's pretty stunning the amount of pressure that can be put on physicians and midwives in a hospital institutional setting. And it's really sad. And so that's why I'm a big believer in educating younger people and people who are in medical school and residency before they get out into the real world so that hopefully eventually um, we'll have a workforce of healthcare providers who kind of understand what's going on in the hospital hierarchy and can, and can kind of like navigate that. Um, because that's all it is. It's a hierarchy. It's people at the top being very paternalistic and saying, well, this is how people at the bottom have to behave. Mm-hmm. And physicians can be in a, in a really hard place. And I talk more about this in my book because of um, threats that can be made against their privileges. So it, it can be very tricky. It's a tricky situation. And, you know, we this is a whole other topic that we have barely gotten into, but you know, and thinking about my situation, and I see this in a lot of ones, 
so it's not just uh, the OB who is going to sort of dictate the situation, but the, the pediatrician. So like in my situation with the premature rupture of membranes, it wasn't my midwife who is like, oh, we need to induce you because that's what you, you know, that's what the care is for you. It was, if we don't induce you and you don't give birth within 24 hours, the pediatrician will have to give baby IV antibiotics. And so I think that's some of the challenge too, is like navigating maybe a provider that you've never even met before is going to sort of dictate the care that you get as the birthing person. Right. There's a whole lot of people involved in the hierarchy. You know, there's hospital lawyers, there's anesthesiologists, there's the chief OB, there's pediatricians. And so, yeah, it's, it's a big topic. And so that's why I spend a lot of time on that in my book talking about all these different people and how they can have an impact on the decisions of birthing families and how we can create change so that families actually are at the center and get the final say in their care. And Rebecca, where can we find this book at? Yeah, so you can find Babies Are Not Pizzas. It's on Amazon as an ebook, a physical book, and an audio book. And then you can also find it online at Barnes and Noble and a bunch of other places. So just search for Babies Are Not Pizzas. So basically anywhere someone might usually. I didn't know if it was just on your website. No, no. Yeah, no, it's a best-selling book on Amazon. It's doing really well. Oh, so I'm super excited. congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, and so a big part of the book is I just want to get the word out about, you know, what is going on with our healthcare system yeah. and how we can create change. So hopefully, yeah, if any of your listeners are interested, they can get a copy. Well, this worked out well timing timing the podcast with you when we did. Again, even yeah. though this has literally been like two years in the making. So <laughs> <laughs> it all works out well. Okay. So do you want to wrap us up, Nicole? Or? I sure can. All right, Rebecca. Well, Stephanie and I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end today? Yeah, I think I would just like to encourage your listeners who are in the field of women's health to really think about how they can promote their clients' education because it's really, you know, the more education and information your clients have, the more empowered they are, the more they'll take charge of their own health, their own, their own health decisions. So if it's encouraging them to take a childbirth class, if it's bringing in educators to hold educational sessions at your clinic, if it's doing webinars or Facebook lives for your clients, like just doing everything you can to educate them outside of those 15 minute appointments, I think will really help build your practice and, and help empower your clients. I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. 